When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're listening to this podcast, you don't get to see Connor McKnight right now, but he just looks fantastic. He's got an exposed brick background. He's got a dog walking around. He's got a White Sox hat on. I love everything you're doing right now, Connor. Thanks, Carm. Love everything you're doing, too. <laughs> it, is, it is wonderful to see you, not in these circumstances. We haven't done a show together since December 12, 2014. I knew you'd look it up. I knew you'd look it up. <laughs> I came on, I was thinking, you know what, when was the last time you and I did a show together? And I knew that you would look it up. That wasn't our show at Pequod's though, right? We did, no, we did shows after that. I, I actually made up that date and I have to confess, it's not accurate because we did shows on the beat well after that. But like just me and you doing a show in December at some <laughs> point was the last show that I really, that to, in my heart, that's, True. you know. You that's know. true. That's true. How that organization let us stay on the air with hot microphones after we all knew we were going to have to pack up the bags and leave. I, I'll never know. I'll never understand. But uh, yeah, it worked out. It was a good call. See, and ever, they get killed for not informing us and we were all upset about it. But I still believe, and I don't think it's even up for debate, the greatest piece of audio that came out of that station was Ben Finfer al alongside Alex Quigley finding out on the air. We didn't do anything better on that station. No one did. No, it's 100% true. That's, that's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, that is inarguable. That is the essence of 87.7 The Game. You, If you go back... I have friends who aren't sports fans and who only are moderately, not even moderately impressed that I work in radio or worked in radio or whatever. And all of them heard about that instantaneously. And we're like, isn't this your station? Oh my God, are you okay? I'm like, yes, it's my station. Like I heard about that from other people before I knew that it was going on. Have we talked about how – well, we, it's your podcast. You no, can, no, decide, no. Think. First of all, it's our podcast. This is team game. Thank you for being on. Second of all, have we talked about what happened on that day? And yeah. Well, I'll give you my story. We did – me and you did a remote the night before yes. at some bar in, like, Tuskegee, Alabama. I mean, it was oh, really – it was so far out. But it was nice. It was the big the, – the one that was really nice and super big – and and it had like it had like a wiffle ball field in the back in, in the backyard, right? That, that's what I'm remembering too. There was a wiffle ball field, and so I'm driving home that night. You're going to really appreciate the story. And this guy that you might have heard of, I believe his name is Danny Parkins, calls me up, and I'm like, dude, I know you want to get back to Chicago, but I would not recommend 
coming back here. I have I have no idea what's going on. The station is not being run particularly strongly. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes I don't know if they know that we even exist. So this would I, I highly recommend you stay in Kansas City. Uh, and so then the next day. I'm sitting on the couch and I get a text from Parkins. Sorry, dude. Cause he's of course on Twitter. Cause what else would he be doing? He's, and, and, and I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, Oh, you didn't hear. You just got your, your station's done. <laughs> like, oh. and, and so then I just sat there. was kind of like amused and Todd called me and I'm like, do you want me to come in? Do you not want me to come in? What are you, what are you looking for here? I, I'm not ex- nonsense. Yeah. I mean, what do you remember? So I, so at, at the building in the WGN tower, there was a gym and, you know, I was getting there relatively early in the afternoon because I'd go down and, and work out. There's my humble brag for the day. Hopefully the only one on the podcast, but I go down and work out and then, uh, you know, have lunch or something like that and then start the show, start prepping for the show. And I was in at the time. I was in the 670 to score fantasy football league. And my matchup that week was the uh, wonderful Herb Lawrence, right? And I played Herb to a tight one. I won by like, I don't know, like a point and a half. You know what I mean? It was a razor slim. And it ha- if I remember right, it happened on a Wednesday. And it's the day that Yahoo puts out the stat corrections for fantasy football. So I'm in the gym. I get a text from Herb Lawrence and the text from Herb reads, Hey man, keep your head up. No worries. You'll get right back at it. And I'm like, Herb, why would you text me? Cause I thought I lost on stat corrections in fantasy football. And this was Herb's way of telling me that I lost a fantasy football matchup. So I like throw the phone against the wall. I'm like, ah, oh, this guy, how ridiculous can he be? What a Herb thing to do. And then Twitter starts blowing up and six or seven texts come in. And I think Finfer texted me and was like, have you seen what's going on? So I ran upstairs from the gym and tried to find management, tried to find our, our boss and our boss's boss. And they were nowhere to be found at the time. <laughs> it was just pure nonsense. But I thought, Herb, I thought Herb was texting me because he had beat me in <laughs> fantasy football. And it turns out it was so much worse than that. God, if Herb had only beaten you in fantasy football. And – you are on the uh, Finfer Quigley moment there. Connor McKnight is here. That's on the, the tape. I don't know if you've gone yeah. back away. <laughs> so, so I, I ran upstairs from the gym, and I first thing I did was go to the producer studio, and I forget who was producing them at the time. It's got it Joe be, Romano. I think it's probably Joe Romano. I think it's Joe Romano, and I, you know, obviously, I, I walk into the producer studio and I'm blind with rage. So it could have been Joe Romano, or it could have been, it literally could have been anyone, and I wouldn't have noticed because I'm just so red faced with all the pure anger and hatred and fear, so much fear. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at Finfer reading this thing. Obviously, I mean, you can hear the tape. I'm looking at him read this, and he looks up at me, and you know, mouths kind of like this, these horrible, horrible words, and then gets back to reading. And I look at Quigley and he's there kind of motionless and then Confer and he's reading and they go to break at some point, like during this magnificent clip of radio, they go to break and I, I, you know, elbow the door open. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I just went to go look for, you know, management for any of our bosses. None of them are there. What do you, like, can I, can I help? And Finfer's like, I guess keep looking. I don't know. <laughs> and I, just, I just, I left and went to keep looking 
And I remember telling, I, I told our boss that they knew. So Finfer's live on air talking about this thing, reading this whole thing, and I'm the one informing our boss that this is happening live on air. They had no idea. So you're talking, you're talking Jimmy or Todd? I'm assuming Jimmy. Todd. You were telling no, Todd. I couldn't, I couldn't. No, I don't know that Jimmy was. I think Jimmy had gone to a different floor by that point. I don't, I don't know where he was. But I, okay. I found Todd and told him that we were. He was that Ben was reading this live and on air. I'm guessing that Todd was generally mortified. That was a great line by Finford, too. Well, I guess we should just call Rob Feeder because he knows more about this than anybody else. <laughs> you know? What a, what a day. What a but day. I also want to underline, because a lot of us were incredibly angry and, and disappointed. But, like, disappointed I got. But as it sort of sunk in over time, I didn't quite understand. And I'm not going to – you know, I don't, I'm not trying to blast anybody here. But – People just were so despondent about it. I'm like, hey, look, I know for myself, I never was going to get a chance to host a show in Chicago had the station not started, okay? And that was probably the same thing for most people on there. Not Cap, not Haw, but for Ben to get an opportunity, for Alex to get an opportunity, for Julie to get an opportunity, a lot of yourself. I mean, a a lot of people got opportunities to do stuff that they never wouldn't have gotten and have gone on from there and have expanded their careers. So even though it sucked that it ended, the fact that it existed, period, was a gift in itself. And you really, I, you, I just didn't think you could be that mad because like, look, they, they yeah, okay, they could have done a better job running it, but like we all got opportunities that we wouldn't have gotten. Yeah, I, I think you and I talked about this after it all happened and as it was going on and while we did shows, while we were, you know, knowing we were all canceled, like we, we all... Well, I, like you said, I think most people understood that they were taking a swing at a startup and most startups fail. I, I still think, I, I firmly believe two things about local Chicago radio. One is that it's, it's there, there should be another show competing against in, in the morning. There should be. I love Mike Mulligan and I love David Hall. I've never met Trey Wingo and I don't know Mike Golick and those two guys don't really know the Chicago sports scene all that well. And the Chicago sports scene is one that deserves a second morning show and a third morning show, in my opinion. So our, and I, I understand why it was. I understand that we had, you know, at the game, we had contracts to, to satisfy and all that kind of stuff, but not going up in the morning in a spot that you need to, you know, have a competitor to say nothing to the fact of, of having a chance to be, be something there. That's a regret. And then I guess the second one is just that knowing, you know, knowing that we all took a swing at a startup, most startups fail. I don't think that that should preclude anybody from starting a third sports station if and when life ever returns to being normal again, which who knows. Right. And look, Houston's got like five sports stations. You tell me Chicago can't have three. It just would have to be done a lot leaner than they tried to do it. You could have, the way I was scheming it, you could have nine people to do the station. Two in the morning, two in the midday, two in the afternoon. Maybe you have a host at night. That's seven. And maybe, maybe that midday show is a one-person show. So now you're down to six. And you've got four producers. You're, okay, you're a 10. You don't need any reporters. You can't make, make your host go out and report. 
a sales team of three or four people. And, and, and by the way, no one's making any money. You know, right. so it, and, and hopefully someday you will make money, but yeah, we're not paying you any more than like, I don't know, 60,000, whatever it would be. Well, I remember yeah, we, we were drawing that up. Well, you were drawing that up while we were, you know, doing the show and playing softball, all that shit. <laughs> I, I, I think that's the way to do it. Um, but at the same time, I, I mean, we're, we're both obviously, and some of us are, 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 you know, part of it. Sports stations are going through a ridiculously difficult time right now. I mean, you've yep. seen what the score has had to do. You've seen what ESPN has had to do. You've seen what, what a number of, you know, massive corporations all involved with radio who have all had tough times leading up to this anyway have had to do to rescale their operations to just keep their heads above water while they're putting out a product and credit to those who are putting out a decent, because there are some, but credit to those who are putting out like a decent, listenable, comeback kind of uh, radio show while they don't have sports. It takes, it takes a hell of a lot of work to do that, especially when, you know, so many of, of us, you know, sports yakkers are, you know, engineered and bred and kind of self-styled to just do the sports. It takes, it takes something else, something extra to do the show. That's not just sports. Just well, us. Well, that's partly why this sucks, particularly for you, Connor, because I would listen to the show certainly more than I wouldn't listen to the show, but I thought from where you guys started. That's a really, that's a I super kind way I, saying, I, I sometimes didn't listen to the I, show. Right. I don't know what to say. I, I, I can't give you a, I listen to the show every day. You're, you're on when I'm working and, I, and I've got to try to work and not listen to Connor and Dan. But whatever, I listened enough from when you guys started to when you guys got to the end and you guys were, were starting to really hit your stride. And outside of the fact that just an op- just an opportunity to do it on that station and that platform is just so rare, and and the fact that you got to do it is an incredible accomplishment by you, and congratulations on all of it. And I'm sorry it ended like it did. Were you you? I, I know you didn't know it was coming. I've heard you say that, right? You had no idea. Yeah. Right now, I had no clue. Um, it, it was, you know, we all that morning we got an email uh, from I, I don't know corporate. And the email said that everybody making, you know, X was going to have to take a pay cut. And that's been publicized since, you know, I mean, guys have talked about it on air and I'm sure feeders reported it and let everybody know what everybody, how much of a bath everybody's taken. Um, So that morning I I read that particular email and thought, okay, kind of understandable, you know, you can hear, and this isn't just the score. This is just, you know, stations in general and sports stations in particular, like you can hear the ad revenue change. You know, once things start to sound more, you know, there's so many more in-houses and so many more PSAs and stuff. And like, as a host, you know, you're very attuned to that. So you kind of feel that change. And you, that's kind of the wind that comes around. Um, but that morning was, you know, that morning was the morning we found out Ed Farmer had passed away. Yeah. So when I read, um, when I read that email, five, 10 minutes later, Rick Camp, our producer, who himself is a terrific human being, an incredibly knowledgeable NBA fan, and was unfortunately let go uh, the same day I was, and who absolutely deserves a job back in sports radio 100%. Um, he sent a, a text out to our you know, show chain and said, hey, you know, awful news, uh, Ed, Ed Farmer's passed away. So really, you know, the rest of my day, day just kind of changed. Not that, it, and, it, and it, 
I, the story's about me, but I don't want it to be because it, this was uh, about talking, you know, that day became talking about a guy that I worked with for two years and had a, a massive amount of respect for and just felt so awful for, for his family, for the White Sox family, for his fans who, who listened to him, you know, so that was kind of that day. Um, and it, you know, it was an emotional show. It, it just was. Um, and then about 10 minutes after that show ended, uh, you know, I was informed that my position was being eliminated and then it kind of ended. So no, I, I didn't see it coming at all. The farmer portion of it for the record, like I didn't know Ed farmer at all other than listening to him. Like a lot of the guy, you know, so you were at the score long before then. So those guys had relationships with him um, and knew what a phenomenal, phenomenal person that is. If you, you know, listen to it, I'm on the radio. Some like him, some don't, but, but nobody who meets Ed Farmer dislikes Ed Farmer. They, you, you, you fall in love with Ed Farmer because he's such a genuine, good hearted, wanting to help you human being. And um, it hit me, man. Farmio was a, was a straight freaking hero and um, and a battler and and all of it, but I was not paying attention to anything that day other than far- I was trying to write up an Ed Farmer piece and then I see your tweet and like I, I'm like this is this is just uh, this is just wrong. I knew you were hurting, bro, because it it it's yeah. it's, it's, it's it, there's just no way way around it. And like I could bring back Danny Parkinson on one of my fire rigs, which was I was working with. I think I've told you the story. I think you might enjoy it. I'll, I'll tell it again. I was working on Nick Wright's show. So I was the producer and the update guy. And, and I went down, I left Chicago to get a full-time even opportunity to be on air to do that. And then eventually the game of the night show. And I was doing all this other stuff with the Royals and the pregame for the Chiefs and whatnot. Anyway, so I'm doing the midday show. This is after Nick has left Kansas City and everything shuffled around. And I'm doing like, I'm doing the morning show. I'm doing the afternoon show. I'm hosting the midday show. I mean, I think I'm kind of in the mix for something here, but the PD's not talking to me. And, and which is a terrible sign. And yeah. so at noon on a 10 to two show, Parkins texts me, Hey dude, sorry to let you know, but this is your last show. You're getting fired, right? You're getting fired. You're getting, you're getting fired at two o'clock. <laughs> and I'm like, now I've got two hours where, you know, I could bend Finn for this thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I got, I'm already got to think about, you know, how I want to play it and how I want to be professional and how you, you know, going out torching the building is just, there's too many people who know everyone in the world in this business. You can't do it. So I do the rest of the show. I think it was a Friday and, uh, and I, and I say, uh, you know, or I don't even know, maybe it was, maybe it was the middle of the week. I, I was dealing with Carrington Harrison, who was one of your favorites. I, you love that name. So I was like, Carrington will be here tomorrow. Have a great day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I walk out the door and there's human resources. They take me in a room. This is not about performance. This is about that. And I'm like, it is just an empty feeling, man. Sitting there, oh, you, right? You put everything freaking into it. It means the world to you. And okay, this sucks. And now, and now, and now, Right, you just got to figure out what's next. Can't it? That, that's that's all it is to it. Yeah, but yeah, it's not. That's, but, that's but, what it is, and you, yeah. you know, trying to find trying to find what's next while nothing's happening is kind of difficult. But that's you know that's the challenge, and that's what it is. Nobody wants to hear me, you know, play the little tiny violin or anything. I do. You know, there's, no, there's no reason to it. I, I'm totally up for some violin. I, I'll, I'll, I'll I, play the tiny violin when we're playing <laughs> softball. This, okay. This, at some point this summer, when softball's allowed again, I will. I will play my 
tiny, tiny violin for you. Well, well, let me, let's, let's dovetail that into the conversation about baseball coming back right now. I saw you uh, retweeting Sean Doolittle and his lengthy, well thought out. What does this look like? In essence, we got a, about, I don't know, 58 of 75 hoops to still jump through to make this possible. Do you think we're going to have baseball? No, I don't. I wish I, wish I did. I wish I did. I, I, honest to God, I, I wish I did, but I don't think we're going to have it. Um, I, you know, there's a, we just, we don't know anything about this virus. We don't. We certainly don't know enough about it to orchestrate a multi-state multi I just the the numbers involved here are ridiculous like it's it's no surprise here's here's what baseball fans should should realize there should be no surprise that a group of 30 the owners have come up with a general plan about how they want to play baseball it's fairly easy relatively speaking to get 30 people with similar interests and similar drive to agree to a certain thing 26 guys on the roster for this coming year. That was the original plan. It's going to be bigger than that because of what you're going to have to do to make a baseball team after all of this. So let's say it's 30. 30 times 30. That's the number of players that you're going to have to get to agree to that same similar something. Anybody who's done a group project, anybody who's been through, you know, had to lift that, that partner through not doing their portion of the damn work understands what this is going to be like to get 30 times 30 to get all those. I'm just you know pulling a, a 30 number out of the hat here because who knows how many players it's going to be, but it should make, it, it should not be a surprise that it's more difficult to get that number of players together to agree on the common goal. They have so many more interests, so many more incentives and disincentives to come back and to play baseball. They have to take most of the risk. Players have to take most of the risk. Do, do you think any of the ownership, if they started baseball again, that had a health concern, would show up in that ballpark, would show up and, and play the same, that just go through the same sort of schedule, travel schedule that these players are going to be asked to do? Of course not. And I wouldn't blame them for it. But it makes sense to see players asking for these kind of particulars, these kind of safeguards, these kind of projects that it's going to take to put together to understand what it is that we're going to have to do so that everybody else can watch us play baseball. Well, and I, I went through the list of, or just, I was, there was a great piece in the athletic with different guys who've got, who, who's the guy in the Rockies who has his spleen removed? David Dahl. David Dahl and Ken Giles, I think has, yeah. has something wrong. And, and Sean Doolittle's wife, she has a respiratory issue that if she had COVID would make for a horrible go more than likely. I mean, how many other people are, are like that? Right. So you've got a significant, whatever it is, 10% enough that that part of it is a, is a major concern. The other side of it is like, look, I would like to think if I'm a professional baseball player, even somebody that's making the minimum, which what is that, 500 and some odd thousand dollars? You would, something like that. Okay. So you would think that you would have enough saved up that you would be able to punt on a season. And yeah, that sucks. It's in the middle of playing something that you don't get to play for a long time. And that's a ton of dough. But let's see, would I rather work out by myself, stay in great shape, come back next year and be in the same situation and not put myself in harm's way? 
I would think I'd want to do that. And for the and for the Mike Trout's of the world who are already set for life, what's their incentive to go and do it? The the incentive is only the for Trout for guys like that. It's only the records, right? I mean, because because of losing these games, there are you know probably home run records that Mike Trout cannot get to anymore. We were probably at an outside chance of his getting to you know, the upper stratosphere, the 650-plus home runs, the 700-plus home runs, maybe. That's gone now because you just don't have the time. And then there's what, – what I feel really bad for are guys like, uh, like Mookie Betts, right? He's a, he's a year from walking as a free agent, as one of the best players in baseball. What, what happens if, if he doesn't play this season? What happens when baseball's finances don't come back to the levels that they were the year prior. I mean, guys are looking at completely different, differently shaped financial outlooks. And yeah, it's so sad. They're baseball players, they're millionaires. Well, sure, but they gave a lot, they give a lot up to take a chance to be like this, to be this kind of guy in, in this situation. Who am I to, to degrade their hard work to getting into the situation that I that everybody wanted to be in? Right. I've never been in that camp of begrudging what athletes make do you realize how many people play sports every single day and how hard these guys work to get there in the um, most elite country club of all country clubs they deserve all of it I mean go look at the last dance and how yeah supremely talented I think people don't talk about that enough insane talent and a preposterous freaking worker man Although like this whole, I'm getting a little thrown off with the cigar smoking that he's like, you're driving down to a game. It's 1997. You're smoking a cigar. You're Michael Jordan. Shouldn't you be eating kale? What's going on here? I don't, you know, I don't know if it, if this makes any sense. I have no medical background whatsoever, but is it, maybe it's just the case that if you're working that hard, like if you're Michael Phelps and you're burning 90 billion calories in the day, it doesn't matter what you eat. You just have to put the calories in. Like if you're doing the work, like were Michael's lungs just so used to pumping through so much air that it just, a cigar smoke? God, hell with that. That's no big deal. He can inhale all he wants. It's, it's fine. It's not a problem. Yes. That's, that, or, or that's hell, a, <laughs> whatever Dennis Rodman was on at any point in time. Like are you just that, is your body just that well attuned? You're going through the rigors of an NBA schedule. It's like, oh, what this drug? Doesn't matter. I'll pump it right through. Doesn't matter at all. As good a theory as any. So hold on a second here. Let me let me just ask you. Then, do you think the NBA is coming back? Do you think do you think we're gonna have NFL football? Are we just? And I, by the way, for everybody who's like, we need our sports. No, we don't. We really don't. We can. There's a million other things we can do. And by the way, working in this industry. I really, 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 really want sports to come back. My job becomes more and more in peril by the day. But do we, do we need sports? The answer to that is no. No, of course we don't need sports back. I would love to have a job that is in peril because we're about to lose sports, but I don't. The job is gone. The peril is gone. All of that. And I still think that we don't necessarily need sports. It's okay. We'll do without it. We'll all figure something out. So, so the NBA and the NFL are a little bit different, right? Because and baseball needs good weather. End of story. If, if the NBA feels like waiting as long as they want to resume the 2020 season, the 2019-2020 season, they can't. And if they want to wait into 2021 and gum up the rest of the works, so they can finish whatever this is, they can. They play indoors. The NFL has the same opportunity because weather's not a factor for them. 
they play and all that nonsense. Anybody who watched the Niners and Ravens last year saw that mess. And it was wildly entertaining, despite being a horrible football, played in the mud and the rain and all that kind of stuff. They can wait. Do they get full seasons in? No, I, I don't think the NFL plays a full season. And if they do, obviously, and I think this is, this is very obvious to anyone watching now, there will be no fans. I mean, we're, we're, we're in a world where whatever gets played through the rest of 2020 and likely into whatever, you know, quote, I'm doing air quotes for those who have the video and those who don't, like whatever playoff schedule we have, maybe the problem. See, I think you just teed up a great idea. Look, whenever the NBA comes back, if it's July, August, or next December, if you're Adam Silver, you could just announce, we are going to pick up where we left off. And we will play the playoffs there, and then we'll figure out when we start the next regular season. At, you know, at that, we'll, fi- we'll, we'll do that math then. But this yeah. season will be completed when we can get back to playing. That being, I mean, I wouldn't have a huge problem with that. I, in fact, I, I think it's fair. He's got a reason for it. I mean, think about it this way. You know, the, the leagues, I would bet that the league, the NBA, when they get back to the playoffs, want as badly as possible for LeBron to have this team constructed as is, or as close as it can be after taking all this time off, to have another shot at the title, you know, with this construction. Yes, he'll be older than he was when the season ended, so will everybody else. But in my mind, you know, if you're the NBA, and, and I don't think this from like a, you know, did Stern bend the envelope on the Ewing draft pick or, you know, was Michael suspended for gambling? I don't think this is in one of their deep conspiracy theories. I think this is just like put the best product out there for the fans. I, I think that goes hand in hand with give LeBron another swing at an NBA title with whatever this is. I, I don't think that, you know, sure, Kevin Durant's going to come back next year, whenever that is but we could be waiting long enough that Kevin Durant is all of a sudden eligible to return for not that, you know, whatever. I mean, if, if the Nets go, the Nets go, whatever. But if, if Kevin Durant is now eligible to come back, now you've got this extra piece of product, make more playoff teams in, make sure that he's in the dance or what have you. I, they, they have, to my mind, the NBA, um, more so than Major League Baseball and much more so than the NFL, has the opportunity to get weird with it and put a product out there that will not only bring fans back because of sports are back, but also because they're willing to change and adapt given our circumstances. And this is all, this is all fairly academic until we get back to a place where we can have a gathering of, you know, two to 300 people in every state. But that's kind of how I've been thinking. About it. Were you upset with uh, Pritzker's moment in time with his sort of going at baseball players, which was, I think, look, he's been doing as good of a job as you can do as trying to make things as safe as possible as soon as possible. But this seemed like a little bit of a Pritzker misstep. Yeah, you know, I, to be honest with you, Karma, I read the headline. And with, with where I'm at right now, personally, on stuff like that, I read the headlines. And on other stuff, I read the article. You know what I mean? I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm unemployed right now. And, and some of it, you know, getting into the everyday of, of the old job still is a little raw for me. You know, like it still yep. kind of sucks to go do. Um, and since I don't have to for some of it, I don't. And I would rather make my, you know, 30th run to Home Depot of the day 
garbed in hazmat suit and respirator and goggles than, you know, go back and kind of, I don't know, pick at the old wound. Not that it's, not that it's all that big, but you know, I'm human and um, it's, it's tough to, you know, it's tough to flip the station on. It's tough to listen to guys do their thing. It's tough to listen to, it just is. Can't do it. You wish, cause you wish you were still doing it. Right. I, so I mean, I, I, I get it, bro. A thousand times plus a thousand, if that's a math equation that would fit in Connor's. What did you teach English? I taught English. I taught yes. English and, okay. and not math, which, which is evidenced by if anybody goes back and listens to it, or if you're skipping around at all, I, I tried when we were talking about 30 teams and 30 players, I tried to do that math in my head for half a second and then realized that if I got that wrong, it'd be, it sounded ridiculous. So I just abandoned it and just said 30 times 30, six or seven times. Yeah. That level of not being able to listen that you're teeing up is part of the reason why when I left WLBK in DeKalb, Illinois, back in my late 20s, and I would just be driving around and, and hearing different people on the radio and thinking to myself, this is bullshit. I, 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 you know, it would just bother me. And so it, it drove me in a way that, okay, I, yes, I will at 33 years old, take a $3,000 a year job doing internet play-by-play for St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas, because I missed it that much. And so I, and I keep on like saying to myself, because, you know, we all are on, it feels like in the business, at least to me, it always feels like you're on borrowed time if you're not like, I'm always nervous what's going to happen next, trying, you know, more so trying to move forward to the next thing rather than think that way. But I, like I say to myself, well, if you weren't working right now, could you, would you be able to listen to what was going on? Probably not. No, it, it, like it, it, it's like, it's a disease, man. The thing, the the business is a disease. Uh, It is, it gets tough. And I wish, you know, to be quite honest, Carmen, I learned a lot from you um, about how to, how to treat this business mentally while you're doing it. And I, I wish, you know, if I look back at, at the two plus years that I spent at the score this last go around doing the show with Dan, I do, I, my regret would be that I didn't take some of your advice a little bit more to heart that I didn't follow it as closely because I, I probably spent too much time looking behind my back and, and wondering, am I doing this the right way? Am I doing this the way I want to? I, you know, because of the way changes were made there when they happened, and because of the fact that I replaced two incredibly talented broadcasters in Jason Goff and Matt Spiegel, I, I sat there for way too long inside my own head just worried, just worried about, about what I was doing and how I was going about it. And did this fit? Did this work? Did I do this right? As opposed to just kind of trusting it and, and letting myself and letting the show and letting people around me, you know, kind of grow with a little bit and vice versa and, and me grow with them. So that's, I, I think in this business, like if you're listening, you're like, oh, what do these two old hacks have to say about it? I, you know, people say, trust yourself and be yourself. And that's true to a point. It's a little too simplified for my taste. But that's true to a point, and you do have to, at some, at some level, just begin to trust yourself and say the hell with the rest of it. See, and I read that you you said that to whoever wrote up the piece on you was it Phil Rosenthal or Greenberg. Uh, Greenberg. Okay, John so and, Greenberg, yeah. so I'm reading that, and I remember us playing softball one day, and you were it was you know it was new, and you were nervous about it, and I was just like. 
and I don't know what I said that day, but, but I, I kind of reading you saying that again, I'm, I was kicking myself that I didn't support you more during the show. I just called up like Connor. I, I'm, I'm not putting anything on me, but, but I was just thinking about it. Cause like, I, I am, I am. Okay. Pl- please do. Please do. Because like, look, I have Matt Spiegel is a tremendously talented guy. And, and so is Jason. They've had great success. They're, they're, they're enormously talented. Okay, great. Your dude. I would never, I, I am offended that you would ever put yourself beneath them or, or had to live up to them or any of it. Like, I just don't like, I think partly for you is because you had worked there before. And of course, you know, you had the Jimmy factor with you and people are just kind of a spotlight, but I'm like, hold on a second here. You walk in there. Like you fucking own that place is what I would have told you. Like, like, and, and Dan's been doing it for a long time, incredibly talented. And so there's another, there's another thing there, but that just pissed me off because I'm like, look, man, d- don't do that to yourself. It's it's not you're not worthy. Of, it's not it's not fair to you. So I I I pre I loved your honesty there and the re- reflection, and I was like, oh man, I wish that hadn't been going on because it, it it just wasn't fair to yourself, man. Well, it's truth. It was you know it was hard for me uh, to to do that. I you know 12 years of Catholic school has a way of <laughs> putting as much guilt inside of a human body as possible. So I you know sometimes it's it's difficult for me to let go of of the amount. Um, but, but still I, I have, you know, and, and I had, I had had for a while, you know, guys like you guys like, you know, Gambino and, and Harris and, you know, people around in the circle who no, I mean, in all honesty, like have done this and who you come to trust, uh, and who you've worked with. And all three of those things don't happen a lot with, with a person in this industry. Um, and you know, it's, it's something where, you know, if you do find that that circle, that little bit of 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 trust and camaraderie and and kind of shared experience, you you can't let that go. I mean, you you absolutely have to do what you can to maintain that because there's a a level uh, a level headedness that, that comes with it and um, a level of trust that comes with it too. It's one of the hardest things in the business because we all want the same thing. We all want our own show. We all want the platform. And we all think we're good enough to do it. The guy that has never spoken to a microphone who's listening on the street thinks he's better than you. So, and maybe he is, you know. Maybe. <laughs> right. Maybe if, he is. At the game, you know, you and Adam and, uh, and Jared got kept around and I was out. And you guys brought me back in to the show, which I'll be forever grateful for as far as like advice in the business, you play the long game, man, being bitter and disliking somebody because they have somebody, something that you don't have. You're, you're hurting yourself. It's just a bad play. Uh, it's a hundred percent true. It's a hundred percent true. I mean, it's just imagine like if you're, you know, imagine if your industry was one where every job you wanted is occupied 90% by somebody you are at the very least friendly with that's a tough place to move up. You know, that's a tough industry to do that because everywhere you're looking is you're, you're having to take something from somebody you like and you don't get to pick who you take it. You're not going to get nobody. Nobody takes the job from the one guy in the business. They can't stand. You know what I mean? Like that just, that doesn't happen all that often. Here's holding out for the day it happens. I don't think it's going to happen. Which, which reminds me of another point in our sort of parallel radio universe is, I, you know, when, when the White Sox are moving from the score to LS, they're doing all these tryouts, and me and Andy Mazur and Harry Tynowitz, we're all going over there doing multiple shows. And Harry didn't ask for permission. I did, which, which uh, was a better job by me. 
And so I've done like, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I've done like three shows over there and like, I'm seeing Chet Kopik and he's saying, you're the guy. And I'm like, I'm like thinking, I'm thinking I'm getting this gig. And then I walk in one day and and you're like, yeah, I can't do the show on Saturday. I'm like, well, that's okay. Well, why not? Well, I think I'm getting the White Sox job. And I'm like, what the fuck? I didn't even know the guy was even in on the thing. He hadn't, he hadn't even tried out. And it's like, oh, I could be nothing but happy for Connor right now. And, of course, yeah. I'm disappointed. But, like, it was – it's like, what are you going to do? I didn't know – but that was the thing. I didn't know you did those shows <laughs> until I told you I got the White Sox job. But So I, I told you that, and you were like, oh, God, I've been doing shows over there for like a month. <laughs> And I, I wanted, I wanted to die. I wanted so badly just to melt into a wall and never breathe again. I felt so terrible because I had no clue because you asked permission, but you kept it so under wraps. You weren't telling anybody, or at least you hadn't told me that you were doing shows over there. So I felt so awful having that conversation. Yeah, yeah no, I kept the, I was keeping that super quiet. Like, what's the point? And that was one of the benefits at the time doing those shows on a Saturday. There weren't many people listening to those White Sox weeklies. So you could keep it under wraps for the most part. So along those lines, what was the best part about working with Dan Bernstein, who I want to tell you a story about, by the way? Should you tell me the story first? Or like, are you sandbagging me here, Carm? No, no, no. I, I just have a memory of young Carm. I think I was... I was either interning or maybe part-time producing one of the two and I was on the ground like picking up carts and this is at the old score on Belmont and Bernstein comes around the corner and this was you know early Bernstein obviously we're talking 97 something like that and I guess I had said to him a couple of days before that the eight seed Knicks were going to beat the one seed Miami Heat and I didn't even remember saying it. He, so I'm on the ground. I'm picking up carts and he like comes around the corner. He's like, great prediction. I'm like, and I just looked at him like all confused. Like, so, and I'm like, uh, what? And he's like, you said that the Knicks would beat them. I'm like, oh, thanks, Dan. Appreciate you remembering that. So that's like my, that's my Bernstein moment. But anyway, that's a, you know, the guy had been there forever. You, you step in, you're working with them. I'm just, uh, well, how would you describe the whole process of it? Yeah, I mean, first of all, he's a Hall of Famer, you know? I mean, that's just, this is, is what it is. That's just a known fact that is uh, commonplace. This is known, right? I mean, Dan Bernstein is a radio Hall of Famer. He should be. Um, I think what was cool about my time working with Dan, and I didn't know this, this wasn't in my head until a conversation I was having with Dan McNeil um, like a year ago, something like that. I think it was at our first scorehouse or maybe a little bit after that, something like that. And, you know, McNeil and I were just, you know, chopping it up, talking a little bit. And he mentioned that one of the things that he liked about the show was how, you know, the age difference between myself and Dan Bernstein was such that it put me kind of in between, um, you know, his kid. And not that that wasn't the same with Jason Goff, but when Jason was working with Dan, Dan's son, Jason, was even younger. So the ages kind of all, you know, like lined up when, when I was working with Dan. And as I was talking to McNeil about it, it was just cool to have, I don't know, like Dan Bernstein was in a, in a different point in his radio career and in his life. And, you know, I got to talk to, to Dan Bernstein about the, the kind of family stuff, the being a father stuff, the, the bringing his kid, you know, into, 
JV baseball and, you know, some real big time hockey and all this kind of stuff that I think resonated with listeners and resonated with, you know, people who have, you know, sons and that kind of thing. And the perspective that, that McNeil said that he kind of liked about the whole thing. And, and I came to like watch for after we had the conversation about it was this whole like Bernstein talking about his young son doing things for the first time. And my kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't have kids, but that's my next step, you know, kind of like in life, you know, that's where I'm headed eventually. And just kind of like that process of, Oh, I just learned this the other night about taking your 14 year old kid to a baseball tryout. Here's what you should look out for. And then I'd give Dan shit about, you know, screwing something up about whatever. And I, I just, I don't know. I really liked how our, our like snapshots in life kind of lined up to talk about some certain things and, and all kind of relate that to sports and, you know, being a guy and, and his being a dad and my, you know, wanting to learn things about what it's going to be like, you know, eventually when I'm a dad, all that kind of stuff. I, I like that a lot. Um, what, what I learned from Dan though, from a, from like a, how to do radio standpoint is you, you know, he's, he is probably the biggest proponent I've ever met of don't do the show before you do the show. And as a, as a, as a man who's done this for 25 years, like he has and done it at such a high level, there's he can rely on that he can rely on dan bernstein um knowing that when he gets into the show when he starts doing the show he's got 25 years of dan bernstein to rely on and be funny with and remember about all that kind of stuff and just watching him you know kind of work that process out live and while it's happening you learn so much about what you can do to try and affect some of those things in your own kind of process. And that's hard. I mean, he's, you know, he's a hall of famer for a reason and he's able to do that. Um, and that makes him him. But I learned also, you know, from him, like you, you, there has to be a certain level of trust with your partner. And that's that the, the kind of trust that I eventually developed with Dan is different from the kind of trust that you and I eventually developed in each other because it had to be, we're, we're different people, but there is a, I wish I could explain, I guess if you, if you haven't had a, if you haven't had a situation like this, I don't know that, that you're really going to connect with it, but there is this like similar thoroughfare where this trust kind of happens, but they're all kind of different ways to get to the same destination. And with Dan kind of constructing that, you know, radio trust or whatever was a very different path than it was with anybody else that I've had. But remembering that it has to exist and then in order to found it and, and create it, you just have to give that person to a certain degree, your blind trust was, was a big part of, of what I learned from him over two, two plus years. So there's a couple of things you teed up there that I really respect about certain people in the industry and I, I think Dan clearly is is one of the people that has that where you're just so comfortable doing the job that you can listen and hear what's going on and not think about what you're going to say next and react to a caller react to your partner react to a guest so it's an in the moment thing that that that's authentic that comes across if that makes sense yeah, and I think what I think when you get to the next level, you know, that that he's at, this this kind of like, you know, stratospheric kind of area where very few get, 
you can do all those things at once and make it sound like you're doing one thing. I mean, that's, that's really what, what it is. Is like when, when you're able to know the read that you've got coming up next, how you want to throw it to break and listen to your partner and respond all in the same, like five synapses. <laughs> that's, that's that next level. You know what I mean? And, and that's, that's where he operates more often than, than most other radio hosts. Yeah. I would, uh, like I held, I hold Steve Cochran in that realm of just like, how the hell are you just so relaxed every time you sit in front of it? And I remember saying that to a PD way back in the day, and he's like, "Dude, the guy's been doing it for thirty years. You, you think you're going to be anywhere close to that comfortable right now?" So yeah. I mean, I, but yeah, there's, there's a. I'm thinking like comparing me to him, which is zero comparison whatsoever. But like me and you's. Uh, relationship like i was sitting there trying to get like connor quit being so damn smart which is clearly <laughs> <laughs> like not what you're gonna do with that guy right well no of course not like you 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 know i, I spent a lot of shows like looking up words that he said and realizing <laughs> that you know in, in a lot of areas of my life i've always kind of like trusted i'm the smartest person in the room you know whether i'm right or wrong about that like that's just kind of me and my you know personality quirk or whatever but you know when you're in a room with dan you're not, you know, you might be close, you're not. So, you know, that's kind of a dynamic, but you know, that's, that's the other thing, like, and, and something that I took from you into meetings that, that we'd have with Dan, you, you very much wanted to, at the time when, you know, when we were doing the radio, uh, you wanted to plan out more of the show and have like, you know, kind of set, not like, not like, oh, I'm going to say this and you say that because everybody knows that makes for horrible, horrible radio. Um, these days, you know, I mean, it used to work, but now it's, it's just not that thing anymore. But, you know, you kind of wanted to like, okay, and this gets us to that and that gets us to this or whatever. And, and I had to, and I'm not saying that that's wrong at all, but that's not where I was then. And I started listening to you and started thinking, okay, all right, this is how Carm wants to do things. Like, let's start to, you know, blend this whole approach because, you know, the five years that I did at the score, the prevailing thought, you know, from most of the people that I talked with about this stuff, and not that I talked to everybody that was there at the time, I didn't have a, a big radio philosophy conversation with everybody there, but with the people I did, it was very much like, you know, you don't do the show before you do the show. Like, it has to be natural. It has to feel, it has to be that you're doing this for the first time when you're doing it for the first time. And you know, that works for some shows and it doesn't work for other shows. And for other, for some, there has to be a blend. So, you know, kind of when we got Dan, when Bernstein and I got into our second year, I, I think, you know, I tried to push a little bit more of, no, 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 there are some things we can plan. And it's not because I don't think we can do it live. You know, I don't think we can do it the first time around. Of course we can. I just think I'm going to be better if we have this, that, and the other thing. And I'd also like to be as good as I can. So here's where we, you know, kind of meet in the middle. And, you know, I think, I think when a radio show gets clicking, and I think we did for a little while, I, I, I certainly think you did. Um, you have this kind of, this give and take. Like you, you, there are, I don't know, if you want to divide it into segments, I guess that makes sense. But like there's segments where, you know, he's that lead dog and there's segments where I can take it. And there's segments where you're both kind of driving and splitting at the same time. Like that, I think that's an important part um, of, of, you know, two man radio shows and not for nothing, but you know, I hope, I hope that this industry is, is strong enough when sports comes back. I mean, like financially that two man radio shows remains 
basically the industry standard. Not that there aren't people who can do solo shows, um, but I, I think a crucial dynamic here is, especially as we move farther and farther from further and further from having callers as part of a radio show anymore, having having two people discuss two points of view is crucial. And and I hope that our that the industry is is robust enough to use a recon recon term to support that. Are you saying? getting away from callers because you think that's the preferred show that people want to hear? I think fewer people call. I think fewer people call radio shows. I think um, Danny Parkins and I talked about this a, a number of times, uh, the two years that he and I worked together. And um, I, I think, I think so few people feel the need to use the phone as a phone that that has absolutely bled over into how we consume content. And that it's so easy to just crank out a text and not, not, not have to think about it afterward. I, I just think that there are so, so few calls worth taking now in, in like the basic talk radio format. You know what I mean? Like if you're doing a White Sox post game show or a Cubs post game show, that's a different, that's a different animal. But I think, I think we've definitely moved away from the caller being the thing that is a driving force on the show and or a referendum of, of the show. It's interesting that you say that because I always looked at it with your background coming when we were working together at the game. Like I thought like I wanted to plan out segments in the show because I was convinced like no one is listening. No one's going to call. We have to have something there or else we're just going to be just wandering in the wilderness the whole night. So we, we wouldn't, you know, go nuts planning out, but I'd be like, we're going to talk right. bulls here whatever, and we're going to move on to the, whatever it was. But I just felt like at the score, you say the number and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's just got such a following and it built on that, that you're, you don't have to say anything great and the, and the phones are going to light up, but you're saying that I'm wondering if that's still the case or no. I, I think phone calls have changed. I think the whole phone call game has changed. And the exception would be like, you know, Dan obviously for years had done, you know, bears Monday shows and that's a heavy caller driven show, right? The Monday after a bears game. And mm -hmm. I think that's another, it was almost, you know, during bear season, it's almost like he and I were doing like, the Tuesday through Friday show was our show. And then Monday was Bears Monday, damn it. You know, and, and that was for Bears fans and that was for Bears calls. And that, you know, in this town, especially, and given the history of that station and the, the way they kind of cultivated their, their listenership, um, that is absolutely the right way to go. Like a Bears Monday is a different show. It's, it's a completely, utterly different show that needs to be treated with, you know, the kind of the same preparation and respect as any other show, no doubt. But that is a show for Bears callers. And it's, I think it works that way. Uh, I think it properly works that way. So if you could pick it, Connor, next gig, are you doing a talk show? Are you doing something around baseball? Some people think that you're a candidate to replace Ed Farmer, which, which I'm sure you would pick that if that was out of the table, I would think. Uh, I don't know. What, what, do you, what do you see for yourself? You know, I, I, I always loved baseball. I mean, that's, it's my first, the first sport that I loved. It is the rhythm of that game and the players and people around it are 
Um, I mean, there's a draw there. There's just a really big draw there. And I'd love to do that. Um, you know, I, I, I think television is, uh, you know, sports on television is, is probably still going to be here when we all come back. I, I think, you know, maybe there's a, an opportunity there or, or something. I, I don't know, you know, and I, I think I probably have a better answer for you. If we, you know, if we, if you and I were in a situation where we could like meet somewhere and do this podcast, you know, I'd, I'd have a better answer for you, but we're not. And we're in a situation where you have to do this over, you know, Skype or whatever and, and push it out that way. I just, I guess that's something I've, you know, that, that kind of is a stumbling block for me still. Like I, I don't know. And nobody does. I, I don't know what we're doing when we come back. And yeah, you know, it doesn't stop me from looking around and talking to people and making calls and stuff like that. And I'm, you know, I, people have mentioned, you know, me in different spots and whatnot, and that's really flattering. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that I have irons. I've yet to find a fire to put them in quite yet. And that's just kind of the nature of, of the beast. That's kind of the nature of, of not having sports right now. So I'm, uh, I don't know what the next opportunity will be necessarily. I hope that I have the ability to shape it. I just know that there will be opportunities coming for you and whatever it may be, I, I hope it's exactly where you want to go, brother. That's, that's the end, end all be all right there. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I really do. Hey, but which by the way, I, every time I went in that booth, once they made their way to GN and you were at the score, of course, and, and uh, the Sox were there, there's the Connor McKnight nearly died baseball and the walls moment. Can you tell that story, please? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you know me, I'm I'm a fairly <laughs> meticulous man, especially when it comes to my baseball. And I have, you know, I got the big scorebook out, you know, when I'm doing the pre and post game shows, and I'm in the pregame or the pre and post game booth, and there there are three windows in the booth, right, left, middle, and right, and they all slide to one side. I like to have the two, the left and the middle window open and the right window closed <laughs> on certain days because it kept the wind in the right place. And I got to have the scorebook there and the monitor was there anyway. So it wasn't, you know, that's, so the right window was closed. So I'm sitting there kind of in front of that right window. James Shields is doing his work on the mound for the White Sox to play in the Indians. Abraham Almonte is up to bat and it <laughs> is a 2-2 count. Shield dirts one, Almonte files it off, and I go, okay, I got some time here, because uh, there had just been a scoring change for the inning before. A caught stealing got changed to uh, something. I don't know what it, I can't remember what it was, because of the fear that's about to be put in me. So I, he changes the scoring, so I put my head down to change the scoring in my book. I miss the pitch, hear the crack of the bat, still not looking. And all I hear is <laughs> ball whizzes by. I felt it on my ear. I felt the scenes. Like if you've ever been playing, you had a real close one or a high heart. Like I felt it by my ear. It pummels the back wall and leaves that indent. I near. I was nearly killed. I was completely looking down. Had no idea it happened. Shields quick pitched Almonte. I never had a chance. Darren Jackson, like, stands up while they're doing the play-by-play. Ed, apparently, I, I've never heard the audio, but Ed, Ed says, like, oh, somebody got to check on, you know, McKnight down there. That was a post, <laughs> something like that. 
I've never heard it, but Dave Zaslowski, who was the producer for White Sox Radio at the time, told me that it's on there. DJ, like, comes into the booth, throws the door open, is like, are you alive? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Why? And I see the ball and the whole thing. And like, I, I nearly, I mean, I, I, maybe twice I've come that close to actual palpable death. That was as close as I've ever come because I'm convinced that that ball would have absolutely killed me. At bare minimum, you were concussed and in the hospital. And oh, compl- at least. At I least, mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, it broke the wall. The plaster. Yeah. It, <laughs> so, so, so Brooks Boyer comes in after the game. He's the, the director of marketing for the White Sox. Uh, probably has a much higher title than that even. But he's, you know, a big marketing guy for the White Sox. And he comes in. He's like, I heard what happened. You know, like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, let me see the, let me see the mark. And he comes down to the mark or whatever, and he looks at it and he goes, you got to sign that. Sign the wall. We'll put a gla- piece of glass in front of it. And I'm like, that's so cool. Let's do that. So I signed, the- I don't know, I for signatures probably faded off. I don't think they ever put it behind glass or anything like that, but I signed the wall where it hit. Is the signature is still there, bro. It's, faded? It's, it's, it's faded, but, but it's, it's, it's very much still there. I don't know how far we've gone in this podcast, but I feel like we're close to the end. So I got two more things for you. Number one on the sports front, somewhat at least, what have you enjoyed most uh, from the last dance and have you cried? Uh, no, I haven't cried. Um, although if I were, and, and I, I truly don't mean this to be like Carm's older than Connor and do that whole bit from the night game again. But if, if I were like five years older or I, I probably would have. It matters. Like I, the age matters. Just, it does. It really does. Like one of the first basketball games I ever remember watching is, is Paxson with the three, right? Sure. And that's, you know, with my dad and he's losing it. And I, I wasn't still really sure what was going on. Like he was excited. So obviously <laughs> I was too, but that's one of the first basketball games I remember ever seeing. And that's, you know, halfway through the damn thing. And obviously Jordan comes back 97 and 98. I'm watching this, you know, and I, I know what's going on, but in terms of tears, like I just, I just wasn't old enough to have all of that in there. I'm more so watching it and thinking like, oh my God, this is so cool. Like, it's just, what hits me most is how much it, how much it gets everybody. Like you didn't, you don't have to be an NBA fan to know that was cool. Did you have an NBA, a bull starter jacket when you were a kid? Yes. Well, then you were cool. Did you watch uh, pro stars with Michael and Wayne and Bo Jackson? Well, then you were watching the right Saturday morning cartoon. You know what I mean? Like all of those little cultural touchstones are, are super cool for me to see. Uh, and then I, I think, you know, on, on the court, I think it's probably the real early Jordan stuff that we've been watching. Like the, the 92 Dream Team practices, like that film. Although I think that film came out like while you and I were doing the show, right? Or shortly around there. It's been around, but I still, there was, there was some different oh, nuances in there that hadn't been in. I, I didn't know that. incredible. Yeah. On episode one and two, when they show him walking onto Madison Square Garden as a rookie, and I was afraid that they were not going to do enough of the of that stuff, and they went to break on the on the first segment of the show, and I was like, "Yes, the montage. There's a montage that's going. Yeah. It's all early Jordan stuff. Yes, that got me as close to emotion as anything else." I was just sitting there like, 
okay, I was not expecting to feel this right now. I really wasn't. Yeah. Like that, that was not on my radar at all. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is, um, this is really beautiful. They, they've done a phenomenal job. I've got, I do have a couple of quibbles with them. Like they, they splice different, like they did with the All-Star Game in 98 in Madison Square Garden. They splice Kobe and Michael talking and they're talking at the United Center. It's, you know, I could see the United Center sections. Maybe I'm in the 1% of weirdos out there that is like holding them to that level of standard. But it's like, why are you trying to sell this like it's there? If you don't have a clip of him talking, you don't need to fake that Kobe and Mike are talking in Madison Square Garden when, they're, when your clip is actually in the United Center. Yeah. People in Chicago are smart enough. They're going to recognize what the United Center looks like. They know the sections look that way. It's beneath you, Jason Hare. You're, 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 the, you're, the, you know, you're the greatest documentary guy in the history of the world. That's not getting by a lot of people. I, I know I'm not the only one that caught that. My, my favorite is when Carm gets provincial. That's, that's my favorite. When you get all kinds of salty about your provincial stuff, I, it's my favorite. Yeah, like they're, your clip and highlights from game six against Detroit, you're acting like it's game three. Come on, man. And I, by the way, you know, I, I, I got wind that they were doing this documentary three years ago. So yeah. I, started, I started emailing him, like, please let me in. Please let me in. I just want to help. Let me do one thing. Uh, I don't, please just interview me. I don't even care if you use it. I just want to talk about him. Um, and so then he, 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 he got back to me, sent me to, you know, one of his uh, coworkers slash minions. And so then I'm emailing with this guy for like three or four emails. And I'm telling him all the cool things I know. I showed up at Jordan's house on Halloween. He, I, I gave him all this stuff. And then the emails just stopped and he, I no longer was being contacted. And that was the end of it. So I tried, Connor. I, I, I really you loved it. <laughs> your only crime was loving too hard. That's all you did. You just, that's your only. <laughs> just loved it too much. I, I, I re- they were like, okay, this guy's a little bit weird. And then he walked into the multiplex one time and he winked at me. You don't want that story <laughs> on there? Come on, man. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the whole thing. So I wanted to wrap up with this. Uh, one of the just, uh, I don't know, in this crazy time where people are grasping for comfort and, and, and meaning and whatnot, uh, I was looking at your mentions when you were talking about leaving the job. Yeah. And your dad put out the nicest, heartfelt, beautiful father son tweet and like yeah like hey connor it's it's dad so and i don't forget i, I should have pulled up the tweet but it was you're you're uh this will pass you're still my guy you're my hero whatever it was and i was like now that is a sweet sweet father that um i just loved it man and i and i, yeah. and I love that he, and i love that he did it publicly and i'm sure he i'm sure there's plenty of conversations on the phone too but it was and, and I remember, you know, you're talking about your dad and your parents, just how much they've cared about you. So I, I thought that that was just awesome. Yeah, he's, uh, he's really something. He's uh, always been my guy uh, and always been in my corner. Um, my mom, too, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'll, I'll look for the tweet. It was really I, – I don't know that he knows it was public, you know, because I don't, I, don't <laughs> I don't know that Papa Steve actually knows how Twitter works. I, I know he knows that if he types it into the phone – it goes to most of the places he wants it to go. Um, you know, but that's honestly, that's just kind of like another level to it. Like I don't, he wasn't writing that to be public. I think he's got like, you know, 12 followers and that's, that's really all it takes for Papa Steve. But um, yeah, he's uh, 
you know, my, my parents have been, you know, big pieces of, of my career professionally. Um, I, I hope that other people have the same situation because it's, it's pretty incredible. You just, it's just tough, you know, as, as much of this is, is, you know, on me and, and, you know, my job and my livelihood and, and all that kind of stuff. Like there's, there's an element to, you know, you want to do right by your parents and you want to have, you know, this kind of thing to make your family feel proud of you and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my family, like a lot of others, I, I'm, I'm sure um, would be the first to say, well, I, you know, you don't need this for us to be proud of you. Oh, but it helps. Just the same, I'd rather have it. Uh, I, I would rather bring this to Christmas than, than a joblessness or, or a, you know, an unemployed check or all that kind of stuff. I, I, but it really is kind of, it, my, my dad and I would talk a lot about my career and, and he was one of the first guys I'd, I'd look to for advice and just how to handle a lot of situations. And, you know, there were days where, you know, I'd explain, I'd say, oh, okay, here's the situation I'm in now. And he's like, okay, we'll explain a couple of things here. And, and sometimes there'd just be silence on the other end of the phone. And you got to remember, my, you know, my dad was in sales his entire life. He uh, worked, he sold packaging to companies. So, you know, like um, pudding cup containers. And, you know, for a while when I was in middle school, the, the operation he worked for made the inset of pogs that went into cereal so like for two weeks in fourth grade, I was the coolest person in the world because the old man brought home a whole like reams of pogs and I just brought them all to fourth grade. It was like, oh my God, you, guys, this, you know, that was his business. And, you know, so, so we get to the point where I've explained this whole thing and about my job and everything that's going on. And, and he's, you know, there's a silence. I'm like, you know, Pop, are you, what, what's going on? And he's just like, Jesus, what is wrong with your industry? No one treats people like this. No one talks to people like this. No one does things like this. If this happened in business, people would be out of business. This would never happen. And it was just kind of his long way around of, of saying, God, I, I wish I could help more. But some of this stuff, you know, this, this gig, is, it's just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And, and he understood it and understands it. And, um, and, I, and I hope everybody who's, who's doing stuff like this has, has somebody who can kind of understand it the same way. That's kind of like an outside perspective that helps you along. You, you teed up a lot there, by the way. And what really resonated with me was my family, like my, my brother, he would like kind of lie when I wasn't as doing as well as, you know, like the, they were like, well, I told him that you were doing this, but I'm like, I'm not doing that. Like what you don't have right. to, but like he wanted to feel something better about me or, or, or was worried that I, whatever it was, I'm like, so there's a thing there. Cause when you do, when you do this job, like there, people know your family, they know yep. what the son does and there's there it's or, or daughter. It's a part of it. And every, every time I talk to my dad, who's, you know, in his nineties and had, like, doesn't, he doesn't realize that he's insulting me, but he's always <laughs> like, if you told me that you would ever be, I'm like, right. you thought that I was going to be absolutely nothing. And by the way, in my own egotistical world, dad, I think I should actually be farther than I am. But the fact that you're thrilled that I get to talk one hour on a, on a weekend, um, I'm glad you're proud of it on some level too. So. And I, I wanted to bring up your dad. It was I 
because your your parents are always like around the show in a weird way like your mom oh yeah yeah no of course of course you know mom mom listened a lot you know like i think i think especially early on when you and i were doing the show you know that was my first show with my name on it and you know things would come up you you'd want to get into some personal stuff or whatever and i can't (laughs) tell you how many times i'd be like i we can do this. I'll do this topic, but it's got to be after eight o'clock because mom's going to listen to the first hour. And I'm not going to talk about this shit when mom's this thing. Like, I'm just not going to do it. I don't feel like talking about it. There's got to be some audio of, or at least part of that. Like your mom's listening right now. Oh, this is great. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. She's in plenty of, oh God, plenty of of segments. She'd text and go, why are you talking about this? Why would you admit this to anyone? Yeah. None of your business needs to go later. Hey, uh, Connor, dude, great to see you, man. It's been fun catching up today. Awesome catching up, Carm. You know I love you. Um, and I, I truly look forward to playing softball at some point this summer. I, it is one of my joys. And for those of you who are regular listeners to Mark Carmen's podcast experiences, you should know this. And I, I'm not lying. I'm not ginning anything up at all. Mark Carmen has the best eye in the league. I, I kid you not. I kid you not. I've watched this man spit on a pitch that missed the strike zone by half a scene and confidently stride in there for the next ball. I, he's best eye in the league, man. I, I want you to know that I used to be good. There was a point in time where I was – I could run. I could hit for power. I could. I was a good outfielder, and now I'm like, I'm reduced by Coach Kenny Carm. Why don't you go split time and right, and try to get on when you get up there, would you? It's yeah, really well. I'd, it's, it's, I'd rip on you if I weren't your platoon mate uh, in right field. So yeah, it is what it is. It's really freaking depressing. But thank you for bringing it up because everything you said there is true. I am great at. Uh, at watching balls go out of the strike zone and just I'll do anything to get on. Hey, that's time to leave. I'm a team guy. Connor, talk to you soon, brother. Hope to see you on the field or somewhere at some point here. I, I've actually figured out how to do tennis. Like all you do is you walk on the court, you open the can of balls, you allow, you put them on the court, you, you pick it up with your racket and the shoe, right? You do a little, and you don't even have to touch the ball. We're, we're, in, we're, in, a, we're in a game. People are not talking about bringing tennis back. Now you can't serve, but – any rate. You know, the thing, the thing that starts the tennis, you right. can't do that, but you can do other things. Right. The U.S. Open is not going to work, but Carm Tennis, we can get something done. Connor, be well, brother. Thank you. Love you, buddy. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.